1: On
2: February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass Amherst student Maura Murray disappeared in the White Mountains of New Hampshire in one of the most perplexing mysteries of our time.
1: For years, we have covered Maura's case and the tireless online community that surrounds it in great detail. We have since expanded our mission with this series, raising awareness and shining a light on the stories of other missing persons. We now sit
2: on the board of directors of the nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing, which was founded by Bruce Maitland. Bruce's daughter, Brianna Maitland, went missing from Montgomery, Vermont, on March 19th of 2004, just six weeks after and about 80 miles away from where Maura Murray vanished.
1: Private Investigations for the Missing aims to assist with investigations for underserved families whose missing loved ones have been forgotten by the media or by law enforcement. Through our growing community, we hope to shed a light on these cold cases.
2: Families and loved ones can reach out to us at investigationsforthemissing.org. This is Missing. Welcome back to Missing. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today?
1: I feel so much smarter today, Tim, so that uh, makes me feel like I'm having a good day. How about yourself? Same.
2: This is really one of the most educational episodes I think we've ever brought to our audience and maybe will ever bring to our audience, Lance. We are speaking with Professor Jane Moncton-Smith. She is the author of a new book called In Control dangerous relationships, and how they end in murder. And Lance, she's developed this homicide timeline. It is truly remarkable.
1: Right. The eight stages. So there are eight escalating stages, which inevitably leads to murder. But she does point out, you can stop it. You can recognize, the, you know, step four. You can get out of the situation. You can tell tell people about it. But this is typically what she sees through her work she's a, a professor of public protection at the university of gloucestershire over there in england and all of the experiences she's had has led her to develop these eight stages so you're able to see the escalation here
2: right so the eight stages uh, all of her work led to that which led to this book and uh, and so we are absolutely honored to uh, to speak with her on these airwaves Lance, you know when they go to commercial on, on the news and they're like, stay tuned for this next segment after the break because it just might save your life. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, this this work from Jane Monkton-Smith actually could save people's lives. There, that, that is not an exaggeration.
1: Now, this is her theoretical framework for tracking the homicidal risk with these situations, but as she's describing it, we identified it as something that we see, not exactly every single stage, but we have recognized stages that we have seen with the different stories that we cover on the shows.
2: No doubt about it. Yeah. And I would say several of the missing persons cases that we've covered here have ended probably in, in similar ways to uh, these stages that she describes Um you know it, by sort of reverse engineering some of her work, you could probably try to see which uh, which cases do fit that um, that template. So it's kind of uh, interesting, and I think we're going to be doing a lot more work um, with this timeline in the future. And make sure to check out her book, In Control. It is from Bloomsbury. That is a UK publisher, and they're still waiting on making a deal in America. But I believe you can order the UK version. It just might take a month or so to get to you. Uh, but check the link in the show notes and keep updating it because I'm sure it'll be available in the States soon. And follow her on Twitter at Jay Moncton Smith. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Welcome to the podcast, Doctor Jane Moncton Smith. How are you today?
3: I'm feeling great. Thank you. It's lovely to be speaking to you. This is a bit different for me.
1: Oh, good. We always like to uh, come right out of the gate with something different, uh, just to throw our guests off, especially when we're nervous that they might be smarter than us, <laughs> um, which is probably going <laughs> on a limb and saying probably the case here. Yeah. Thanks so much. You are a doctor. You're a criminology expert, and You have a very renowned history in this subject. Uh, Can you give a little bit of background before we get into what we're uh, talking to you about today?
3: Well, I started my criminology journey, if you like, as a police officer many years ago. Um, And I'm actually now a professor of public protection at the University of Gloucestershire. So uh, it's been quite a journey, actually. And my my specialism is, in fact, homicide.
2: And uh, you've got a new book coming out called In Control, Dangerous Relationships and How They End in Murder. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about this book?
3: Yes, this this book has been um, the result, I suppose, of pulling together all, all of the things that I do in my in my professional work. So I'm not just an academic. I spend most of my time, in fact, working out with the police, with the probation service, with bereaved families. So I do a lot of risk assessment training, risk assessment work. Um, And I'm also a homicide review chair. So when I started looking at lots of these cases of especially intimate partner homicides, um, there was just such a strong pattern that kept coming up, kept coming up all the time. So I decided to do some formal research on it just to see if what I was suspecting was true. Uh, So we looked at, for the research project, 400 cases. And this pattern was so, so strong. Um, We published it. And um, I I, don't know, the, the impact was astonishing from all over the world with people saying, oh my God, yeah, we recognize this. We recognize this pattern. And um, out of all of that, I because I wanted um, it to reach a much wider audience, I, I wrote a book and there's um, a chapter dedicated to each stage in what I call this homicide timeline. And there are eight, eight stages. And so far, the book's being released next week, but it's doing really well already on pre-sales. So that's great news.
1: Awesome. I can safely say that... Uh... Tim, you have ordered your pre-sale copy, right? I sure did. Oh, good, good. I have as well. I can't wait to receive it. But before we get into that book, it's super interesting and very uh, applicable to what we do in some of the stories that we talk about here. Um, You mentioned something right off the bat after you said that you worked in homicide. You said you were a part of the public protection or something like that, but we moved on too quick. I wasn't able to write it down, and I'm curious what that is.
3: I am a professor of public protection. Um so I don't know what what it's like in America but in England public protection means um interpersonal violence. So things like domestic abuse, things like hate hate crime, stalking, all of those kinds of things.
1: Okay, I'm trying to think of the comparison here in America but I can't. How do you, how did you decide that that was something that you wanted to uh, go down? Like, how did you decide you wanted to go down that path?
3: I think um, when I was a police officer, I mean, this is many, many years ago, I was quite shocked at the way we justify an excuse, especially serious violence. And I started to become very interested in the most serious violence because I was quite concerned about how keen we are to excuse and justify homicide you know how when when uh, killers are in court for example we will do everything in our power really to try and in that journey to try and understand what happened to almost excuse what happened and that's where it all started for me Um, so I started you know really delving into homicide and actually found that I was right and I, I think I've been outraged ever since, and you know I, i'm I'm just so passionate about it It's taken over my my whole life
2: wow that's that's compelling and uh, and so that's kind of led you to uh to your work now uh, in write, writing the books and this um this incredible timeline that you put together that uh really seems to um Like you said, it kind of just clicks in uh, something clicked in my head when I saw it. Um, It looked very familiar, Um, obviously, kind of from a different end. We we cover a lot of missing person cases um, on this show. And undoubtedly, some of the cases we've covered have ended in homicide and even intimate partner femicide. Unfortunately, though, I guess we don't know exactly which ones, but your timeline could potentially help us identify which ones.
3: It, it's, it's strange. There's been so much research done and we know actually so much about, um, I suppose I could call a domestic abuse homicide or, or a coercive control homicide. We know so much about it and yet we don't. It's, it, it's this kind of we know so much and yet we know nothing. How, how do those two things fit together? And I think when I did the, when I wrote about the timeline, I was trying to bridge that gap so that people would understand in a in a very clear and accessible way because let's face it research isn't always clear to understand is it even as a as an academic myself I look at some research papers and think oh my god what are they talking about so you know what it's like for people who are not used to academic language which is why I so wanted to write the book because this subject affects nearly everybody male or female, everybody will have a story, but mainly women domestic abuse does affect mainly women, not always women. So, and when I when I sort of thought, right, well, I'll put it into a timeline because these timelines have been used for other forms of murder. So there's one for serial killing, for example, there's even one for genocide. So why why didn't we have one for domestic abuse homicides, which actually are probably in, Practically every country in the world, the second biggest category of homicide, the most, you know, the second most likely. And when I published the the timeline, it started to really resonate with people. They look at it and it was talking to them. And I've had so many victims and families say to me, "Oh my God, this is telling our story. This is telling our life." And um a police officer said to me what this what this timeline actually does is takes the chaos away. It makes order out of the chaos and if you've got order, you've got more control over what's happening and and you know knowledge is power isn't it and and it really is having a an effect in safeguarding and safety advice
1: yeah that that's really important because you see all of these patterns, especially in domestic abuse, where everyone says after the fact oh how did we not see that coming and that's the least surprising surprising thing ever i mean the the writing is always on the wall if if there's an indication there's probably something there below the surface and what you do here with these eight steps is go under those layers and you're you're digging under those layers and and in the attempt to educate in the future because you can't change the past. You can't change how law enforcement or family members or anybody outside of the abusive situation handles that abusive situation now. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. but what you can do is peel it apart like you're doing here and educate. And I'm wondering how difficult it was and how difficult you think it could be with other law enforcement departments. How, how difficult is that to communicate to, to law enforcement? Because it's—is it sort of like a re-education?
3: Well, in in some ways, you're right. In some ways, it is a re-education. But in a, side by side with that, people aren't looking at it and thinking, "I've never seen that before." So it's, it's, you know, it is—you know—it is translating across. They just have to reinterpret what they saw in the light of what they now know. Um, and, you know, the work, some of the work that you do, you know, with missing people, I have been or police especially have been using the eight stages where there is a missing person or a homicide or maybe just a suspic- suspicious death. Using the eight stages to track back, should we be concerned? So, you know, if somebody's reported missing, for example, you can look at the eight stages and say, right, let's track back. Was was the eight stages relevant in the history of this missing person? And if it was, you could probably then say, we need to upgrade this to maybe a homicide investigation. It's resonating with police from before a homicide, but also afterwards.
2: Wow, that is that's a really interesting um, way to look at uh, missing person research and uh, something I think we'll definitely uh, attempt in the future. Uh, Thank you. That's your work is um, is pretty incredible. And um, one similarity that I noticed uh, that you have on social media to our friend, uh, Professor Liz Yardley, is that you both get really frustrated when headlines say, uh, oh, man snaps and kills his partner. Um, Why is that so uh, frustrating to you?
3: Oh, oh, it really is frustrating to me. In fact, it makes me angry. And there's there's a few reasons for that. When I did this research, what I really needed to do, the first thing I needed to do was challenge the crime of passion narrative or explanation for a domestic homicide. So that's how everybody explains it. Oh, well the red mist came down. This was just spontaneous. Nobody could have predicted it. Who could have foreseen this outcome? And then you're saying, well there's nothing we can do. Which is the first frustrating thing. So I needed to come in and say, yes, we can predict it. We absolutely can predict it and there's other researchers that have said the same thing. So that, that, that's one thing. But the other thing is, if we say, oh, it was spontaneous and the red mist came down and he just snapped, we're making an excuse. We're making, you know, we're giving him a justification that is going to reduce his sentence. Now, that's dangerous as well. You know, I, I could tell you some real horror story cases. We had a case here, in fact, not very long ago where um, a man had killed three partners before he was given a life sentence three it should have not have happened after the first one so and but every time he was able to use that excuse that he just snapped of course the next thing on from that then is if people think that they're in no danger if they don't know what the danger signs are they can't keep themselves safe and they'll just spend all their time trying to make sure this person doesn't snap When, you know, that that story of a homicide isn't based in any kind of fact at all. None. So, yeah, you're right. You can tell I get angry about that.
1: Well, as you should. Where does this, um, I guess, nonchalant attitude come from? Does it is it like steeped into the, the 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 toxic masculinity of the past? Is it steeped into literally caveman days?
3: Well, you, you were the one to bring up toxic masculinity, but I'm, I think it's, yeah, you're absolutely right. Because if we, if we go back into history of um, kind of Western cultures, women were owned by men, literally. And still, you know, you look at some countries in the world and that is still literally the case. And if you look at somewhere like France, for example, actually had the crime of passion written into law as a defence, So that, you know, that can be used and and because it's written so deeply into history, in, in the marrow of our bones, as it were, we see that explanation and we think, oh yeah, I know what happened there. And everybody moves on and nobody thinks there's anything we can do, but we can, we absolutely can. In, I don't know if you're interested in this, but in the UK, for example, back in 1800s there there was a law called petty treason and that was um, a crime above murder so if you murdered somebody who was your superior you know somebody killing a priest or something you would be charged with petty treason not murder now all women who killed their husbands were charged with petty treason but men who killed their wives were charged with murder. So, you know, that that disparity that you talk about is, you know, it's actually evidenced in our legal processes and our histories.
1: Side note, you know what I learned? And I'm trying so hard to not use this uh, cliche any longer is uh, where the origin of rule of thumb came from. You know, people say, well, that's the rule of thumb. Do you know where that comes from?
3: Well, I have been told that, that is about uh, as long as she, the stick you beat your wife with is yep. wider than your thumb. Yep. Yeah, I mean yep. the, the, these things uh, are embedded. You know, <laughs> we we can't stand outside of them as men or women. We just have to resist them when we hear them.
1: But the this what what really struck me about that was how often people use it and and how it just lost that meaning and it it still it's that's where it came from but no one knows i mean just a you know you have to be sort of a trivia geek to to know that but it just became such a common phrase applied to everything that was uh like just common knowledge well you know just the rule of thumb like i mean if you were to if you were to say uh you know <laughs> rule of bullet people would be like what does that mean you'd have to say well that's you can't use a caliber of bullet larger than this to, you know, shoot your parents and people would be disgusted by that.
3: I know when you go back into language, it's really shocking, isn't it? I mean, there's another example of that is the word hysterical, which when I started researching, I was, oh, I was outraged at that word and how it only applies to women and that's where the word hysterectomy comes from you know to cure hysteria you give a woman a hysterectomy and then when you you get a sense i think from that kind of language don't you of that embedded in it is sexism it is we do judge men and women differently and we do give men lots and lots of excuses and justifications for killing their partners
1: oh, god this could really be a um sort of a morbid geek out section session that we could go into. Uh, but
2: let's, uh, jump into these stages, uh, if you don't mind. So you have eight stages here laid out and, uh, stage one is pre relationship history, criminal record allegations. And that's sort of an indicator sort of prologue is meaningful here.
3: Right. So, I mean, that first stage is incredibly important because what I'm saying is if there is a first stage, And that first stage only describes the perpetrator, then we're saying they're a type, aren't we? And that's, you know, that's something that we don't often do um, with this kind of thing. Because when we say it's spontaneous and the red mist came down, we're really saying this could be any guy, this could be anyone. That's just not true. It isn't true. It's a certain type of partner. Usually a man, though there are some women that follow this eight stage pattern as well. So I thought that was that was interesting. But history does not we can't rely on a criminal record to tell us that somebody's got a history because we very rarely prosecute men, especially for domestic abuse. So it's about listening to what they say about their previous relationships that's going to give you the clues as to whether this person might be difficult to be in a relationship with. You know, know, this is the the kind of language we use certainly in this country would be, oh, crazy ex-girlfriend, you know, she blamed me for everything. She knew how to push my buttons and she still did it anyway. You know, if somebody's saying that, they're not taking any responsibility for bad behaviour that they're actually admitting to. They're admitting to bad behaviour, but excusing it. And we're so keen to say, oh, yeah, I understand about the crazy ex-girlfriend. The world's full of them, you know, but it's really a red flag.
1: Right. And I I wonder what it would be like on the other side of that if and I'm sure there are cases that we could cite that I'm just not prepared for right now. But when a woman does something uh, violent towards a man and, and her defense is, well, he just kept pushing my buttons. I mean, the 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 perspective of that is totally different.
3: It it is totally different. And to put this into some kind of perspective, I think we should put it into perspective. Women uh, in intimate partner homicide, women are the predominant victims. So the United Nations say 82% of, of this type of murder will be a woman killed by a man. The next biggest group are gay men. So gay men are at more risk of this type of homicide than heterosexual men because they've got a male um, perpetrator, because around 95% of the perpetrators are male. So whereas it might feel unfair to make this a gendered or sexed debate, you can't escape it in this particular category of homicide. You really, really can't. But we did do some research on women. Who followed this eight stage pattern? there's just not very many of them, but they are there
2: okay and uh, stage two early relationship uh, warning signs I thought it was interesting that uh, that you included early cohabitation so that's like um, like a guy or or someone in in this case sort of uh, getting too close too quick
3: Yeah, so um, what tends to happen in in this early stage when people meet? the the person who's going to become a problem is usually more intense about the relationship. It may be that the, that the other person is as well. we say the woman is as intense, but not always, but they will try and push and push and push the relationship to move on very quickly to a stage where you're in a, an exclusive relationship together, living together, maybe. So some of the things we saw that kept coming up were moving in together early, uh, getting pregnant early, getting very jealous very, very quickly and, and seeking out um, some form of commitment. But the scary thing about stage two is that victims don't recognise. And I did interview killers for this as well. I, you know, I spoke to everyone. Once you give a commitment to a jealous and possessive person, you can never withdraw it. That's it. You've signed a contract and only they can release you from the contract. You cannot release yourself. And that's when the danger starts. And that's what happens in stage two.
1: Now, does this um, play out in a similar fashion if the person or if the two people are in a long distance relationship or if one of the significant others uh, works a lot and is not is not home a lot and therefore opens up I guess like that door into this paranoid jealousy that they might have because they're just not there with the significant other and they start creating scenarios that might not be accurate.
3: Well, I would say to that, they're going to be paranoid and jealous whether they work in a way or whether they're at home That's with you. That's a good point. <laughs> it, it's just who they are. It's who they are. They, you know, it may be um, more noticeable perhaps if they if there's a distance between the two people And the the accusations or the paranoia may be more noticeable, but they don't become jealous and possessive. They are already, when they enter the relationship, jealous and possessive people.
1: It's not like they're going to grow into that. I mean, some people people might have suspicions, but that's a far reach from something that is uh, as dangerous as what we're talking about. And that type of person's always been
3: like that. And that person's always been like that. You know, we all get jealous, don't we? And jealousy is normal. I'm not trying to pathologize jealousy. What I'm saying is routine jealousy, intense or paranoid jealousy or possessiveness as a, you know, as something that that is brought up regularly is a problem. If it's just... The odd, you know, I saw you talking with your ex tonight and I felt jealous. That's normal. That's okay. Depending how you respond. But if it's, you know, where are you going tonight? Where are you going tomorrow? Are you wearing that dress? You know, how are you getting home? I'm going to come and get you. And, you know, all that probably sounds a bit cynical as well. But when you start putting it all together, that's a problem person and it's never okay.
2: Right. Okay. And we're still in the early stages of of a relationship, really, here at this point. And so stage three kind of uh, gets a little little deeper, I guess, because um, this is where coercive control uh, is listed. Can you tell us a little bit about coercive control and how it begins?
3: Well, coercive control is um, people don't really understand understand it very well but I mean your own Professor Evan Stark, um, he wrote the, the book didn't he on coercive control and we now have, um, it's, it's now a criminal pattern in this country um, and it's spreading I think Australia are looking at it now but what coercive control does I and mean, this links into the jealousy and the possessiveness Coercive control traps somebody into a relationship so they cannot leave. It's like a, it's like creating a hostage situation. So you're in a relationship with somebody. It's not necessarily the, the case that you're being beaten up all the time or anything like that, but the person's um, jealousy or possessiveness will be stopping you doing things and you will become frightened to challenge them um it'd be like a lot of people say it's like walking on eggshells and some people will use violence to maintain control some people will not you know there's financial abuse sexual abuse there's all sorts of ways that you can make somebody feel as if they cannot leave you or you make it clear that if you leave, there will be consequences. And that's that that in a nutshell, although it's obviously much more complex, is what coercive control does.
1: You just um mentioned that coercive control is a a criminal act. How how do you prove that in a court of law?
3: Well, it's quite a new type of legislation that we've got. So we've only really got two offenses here that are what we call course of conduct offences. So they're not based on incidents. You know, if you punch somebody in the nose, you're going to get done for assault. That's an incident. Coercive control and stalking are both courses of conduct. So you have to prove a pattern. So you have to prove that this person behaves like this as a routine. There is guidance on what can be considered to be um, behaviours that are acceptable in the law, you know, as constituting a controlling pattern so probably the law says on more than one occasion you know on t- at least two occasions this has happened but but you know I will add to that you know that's that's a bit of a new game for the police to be searching for evidence for a, a course of conduct defense but I think you know especially with missing people you know it's get in there and find out what those patterns were in that person's actual life. Especially if, you know, it's um, a mom who suddenly left her children, for example. Um, what were the patterns? Was she free to do what she wanted? Was she free to say what she wanted? Was she free to challenge? Would, you know, those are the kinds of questions that in the past we haven't really asked, but are crucial.
1: I'd imagine someone like yourself would be called into I guess, be an expert witness in, in situations like that.
3: I do. uh, I do work with the police a lot. Um, I've been expert witness in uh, inquests as well. Um, And I also, I just this week, in fact, I helped the police with um, a stalking case where I did. I, what I tend to do is a risk report or a threat report that um, lays out, especially using the eight stages Um, lays out where we are in this journey. You need to do something. You need to do something now because we've got to this stage. And if you don't act now, it may be too late. But also in, I've done cold case homicides where we've applied the eight stages uh, to the history. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. We took it
0: all. We brought them to our land. That's Nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's KNIX.com.
2: Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Stage four is a trigger warning signs and separation, threat of separation, mental health deteriorates.
3: Well, what stage four actually is, is a trigger. So that's what the stage is called, trigger. So you've been in this relationship, okay, with this person who's trapped you in the relationship because they they own you, you know, you're not allowed to leave. So the biggest trigger for a homicide is that person leaving, attempting to leave, or the, the controlling person imagines that they might leave. So that's the biggest trigger. There are other triggers, and you did mention some of them. Um, Sometimes physical or mental illness or health deterioration can be a trigger. I'll give dementia as, as an example. So if the victim of the abuse, for example, gets dementia, all of a sudden they don't respond to the control in the way that this person's got used to. And medical professionals come in and start making decisions and that takes away control and they really can't deal with it. So other things like retirement or bankruptcy is another one that takes control away from this person. I mean, I've seen lots of cases with bankruptcy at the core where children have ended up being killed as well. So this trigger stage how they respond to the trigger tells us how dangerous they really are.
1: Interesting, because when you hear the word trigger, most people automatically go to what the victim did to trigger the individual. Uh, but there's so many other elements, and essentially it's something that is out of their control. You mentioned like bankruptcy. That's interesting. That That's an interesting factor that might be a trigger because... In a way, that kind of is in their control, that they let get out of their control, maybe, depending on their, um, you know, social situation, their, their economic situation.
3: It's more the impact that the bankruptcy is going to have. Yeah. What they tend to think is that the bankruptcy will take away their relationship. They won't have control of it anymore. The, the wife might leave them. They may, may have a home no longer. And that's why in those cases, they will just kill the family rather than face the consequences. I'm not saying that's a common thing to happen, but it does happen. And it's not about what the victim has done. It's all about how much control this person believes they have over their life and the situation that they're facing. <coughs>
1: I I feel like there's there I feel like right there is this like gray area of insanity and something else that I'm not quite sure.
3: No. We actually left out all cases where there was psychosis mm-hmm. or or insanity. Mm-hmm. So we only dealt with people who were making rational choices.
1: I think that's why it's so hard to wrap your head around, or at least me to wrap my head around, is because <laughs> these are people who are making rational choices. This, to kill your family feels like that's insane to me, but it's a trigger for them.
3: It's a trigger for them, um, which is why, you know, if you go back through the stages and you get to stage one and you've got somebody who's got a history of needing to control everything that goes on, you know that that person's not going to deal with having their control taken away. They really can't deal with it. They, they see it as humiliating. They see it as taking away their entitlements. And um, they see it as a, a rejection and they cannot handle the rejection. But over layering that, you talk about mental illness. Of course, there are, are things that may come into play like um, depression along with those things, but that's not causing this. It's, it's the, um, the fear of losing what you're entitled to and your status in the world.
2: And even it seems like in some cases, um, the perspective that maybe your parents have of you, I guess it seems like in one example, you use that uh, the perpetrator texted uh, a woman named Alice's parents with reasons why they should not split up.
3: Mm. I've seen a couple of cases like that. One case I will tell you about, which might, um, it sounds absolutely crazy. The woman split up with him. He really couldn't handle it. And he just wanted the control back. And he felt so entitled to that relationship. He went round to the mother's house with a PowerPoint presentation, I'm not kidding you, a PowerPoint presentation that he showed to her over the course of an hour, telling her the logical and rational reasons why he, she should help him get get her daughter back on track and back in a relationship with him. Well, he'd killed her within a couple of weeks of that. Yes, I mean, it's shocking, isn't it? So- yes. You know, you don't. But in his head, I mean, it sounds like crazy behavior, but he was making a rational case. And I I will just quickly go back to what we were talking about mental illness. Personality disorder is probably more relevant here, you know, where people uh, don't have that empathy with other people's feelings. They might be narcissistic. You know, that, that's certainly not all of them. And there is um, a de- kind of a dependent category as well, where they become incredibly dependent on the relationship ra- rather than, you know, they've got this personality disorder where they feel hugely entitled to it. But in both cases, they're acting in a way to try and either get things back or punish the person, their partner, who they see has wrecked everything for them. Wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It is shocking. It is shocking Shocking to hear, but it, you know, I don't think for people it, it doesn't make sense. Right.
2: No, it does. Um, You're saying that someone who suffers from like a, maybe malignant narcissism um, they're not insane. They're going through uh, steps of control and, and they even rationally think that this, person is better with me than without me for these reasons. Um, but when they lose control, it actually gets physically dangerous for the person.
3: Yeah, it, it absolutely does. Um, and we collected evidence at every stage. You know, we didn't just theorize. We came to these conclusions from the evidence that we were finding in over 400 homicide cases. As you go on through the stages, they become more and more shocking.
2: Okay. Okay. Well, uh, stage five is escalation. And um, this is where concerning behaviors even get more serious. And uh, this is where we start talking about stalking. And I guess that means even it says even low level, but that means physical stalking.
3: Well, what that means is, um, right. So stage five is a response to stage four. So stage four is a trigger. How does this person respond to to this trigger, this loss of control. So what they will usually do is try and get the control back. So they will start throwing everything at their partner, usually, to try and get the relationship back or the control back. So that might mean begging or crying or threats or violence. And very often this is where stalking, as you just said, this is where stalking starts. If the relationship does break up, that's when the stalking starts. But depending on how you um, define what stalking is, it's probably been going on anyway all through the relationship with the, you know. We have so much, so much evidence of cyber stalking of partners. Um, So, you know, from hidden cameras and listening devices and GPS tracking and stealth software on the phone and, you know, checking the petrol, all, all of these things have been going on for some people without their knowledge. And when they leave the relationship, they're going to continue with those behaviors very often. And in this country, you can't charge stalking unless the relationship has broken up.
1: And you mentioned threats of violence. Uh, I'm sure there's threats of violence towards the other person, but do you find that there's often cases where there's threats of violence towards themselves and maybe even confiding in their partner's friend that they might hurt themselves so that their partner's friend will tell them almost in a way where, you know, well, listen, person X is, you know, he's told or she's told me, either way, um, this person's told me they might hurt themselves if you don't do something. Have you found that to be the case?
3: That's not just what I've found. That's been found in research that's been done over decades. Uh, threat to suicide in, at this stage, it's, you know, if it's at stage three, you know it's a control tactic usually. At stage five, it's an even higher risk. If someone's threatening to kill themselves to control you, we always say to police officers, read that as a threat to homicide because they may well be They may well be thinking about killing themselves, but they'll take you with them. Or it's an empty threat and it's just literally a control tactic. But either way, they're thinking about death as the resolution. Nobody should be thinking about death as the resolution to this uh, loss loss of control over someone in their life.
2: Okay, and uh, so yeah, this this discusses uh, a lot of cyber stalking, um, hacked uh, potential social media accounts, leaving gifts and messages, um, maybe using language like "I won't let you leave" or "I can't let you leave." If I can't have you, no one can.
3: Mm-hmm. If I can't have you, no one can. Is I think in research from from the United States as well, the most common thing said by these people, the most common. Time and time and time again, that's what they're saying. And that gives you a kind of insight into their head. There was this one guy I went to visit in prison who had um, killed his wife. And just to give you an an insight into their heads with these things. The first thing he said to me as I sat down was, you realise that I'm the real victim here, don't you? It's this kind of, um, I think, well, yeah, the dead person clearly is not the victim here. It's you. But it's, you know, that's their thinking that there's this injustice being done against them and they've got to act against this injustice and they feel they they feel justified. So they will do all these stalking behaviours and they will physically stalk, they will cyber stalk. And at this stage, that is incredibly dangerous. It is a red flag because it's saying they're not accepting the end of the relationship. Then continuing to act.
1: When you were speaking with this person, this person was in uh was incarcerated, right?
3: Yes, he'd ha- he got a life sentence.
1: How long had he been in there before you had spoken to him?
3: Uh probably been in there about 18 months, I think.
1: So after 18 months of being convicted, he was still he was still going with the it's I'm the victim here.
3: Yes. And then he went on to say. And I do discuss this in the book. He went on to say, nobody comes to visit me. My kids don't come to visit me. Now, his kids were adults. Um, They don't come to visit me. You know, and so, you know, that's proof. He said, that's proof that I'm being blamed for everything. And I was thinking, he's not even he's not giving a thought to what his children would think about someone who killed their mother. Not a thought. And he never mentioned her by name through the whole interview.
2: Okay, so that's there's no real reform for something like someone like that. There's not there's just not like a there's a box in their head that isn't checked uh, when it when it comes to uh, empathy for someone. And he's never going to get it. He's never going to get that. He's not the victim there. Is that correct?
3: No, he's never going to get it. And um, he's not the only one, only killer that said that to me. Not at all. Um, I think it's that feeling of entitlement and justification that's driving it, that sense of injustice that just because the person's died, they don't feel remorse. Um, Research tells us um, that the most common emotion after homicide is relief, not remorse. So, you know, if if you take that on board and you're thinking, well, what were they thinking before if they now feel relieved? And that's the same for um, serial killers as well. You know, they very often feel relieved rather than remorseful. A lot of, um, especially serial killers, never get to a stage of remorse, do they? Ever. Right. And, and neither neither do these um, these intimate partner killers.
1: Right. Because what has been building up up until that point has become this, um, like, a big dangerous ball of burden that they have.
3: Yeah, they can't let it go. Yeah. They've got to get the control back. They've got to resolve the situation for themselves and unfortunately some of them see homicide as the only way to achieve that
1: and we can move on i just have one more quick question on on where we're at right now is there like a common thread that you see with um an occupation or some sort of vocation that these people might have or it just it's it's sort of spans the the whole spectrum
3: I think it spans the whole spectrum, although if you were looking, well, this is contentious, but um, if you're looking at domestic abuse rather than domestic homicide, two different things, but related, the worst professions for domestic abuse are policing and the armed services. But I'm not necessarily finding that in domestic Homicide. although we we've had quite a few police officers kill their partners okay that's the control job maybe maybe more controlling people are in those kinds of very structured organizations
1: yeah uh, structured and high stress always sort of on the on the defensive and and faced with the you know sometimes faced with the worst of humanity. So that's sort of all they see for the most part. So I could, I can see how that could be maybe a common thread if you were to look for one because...
3: In domestic abuse. Yeah. We've, we've definitely seen that, yeah.
1: I mean, it makes sense. Like, how do you put a human being with a human brain into a situation every single day where they think these thoughts every single day and not expect them without the proper treatment? not, I don't want to say therapy, but without the proper back end to that so here go out into this situation uh, you're always going to be afraid you're always going to be fearful of your life you always have to make sure that you make the right decision I'm every sure time they are. i
3: disagree with you can i disagree with you oh oh please yeah yeah i think it's more that people with who are very controlling are attracted to those very structured powerful roles ah it, more than the role does it to them Because Ah. there are some wonderful police officers out there, absolutely wonderful. And I've met so many of them. I'm just saying the research says that people with control issues and that translate into domestic abuse are attracted to those very structured, powerful roles. It's just another perspective.
1: No, that's good. Uh, Tim, we'll make sure that we cut the part where she disagrees (laughs) with me.
3: (laughs)
2: Perfect. (laughs) So stage six is change in thinking, and, and uh, this, this starts to get really terrifying. Um, so this is last attempt set, at reconciliation. Victim does not respond to threats. Uh, so this is, uh, I, I take it, physical stalking at this point?
3: Well, if I just say um, about stage five, because it might be fr- frightening people, stage five is pivotal because this is where it usually ends everything everything usually ends here at stage five so either the person will think this is too much trouble i'm just i'm leaving okay i accept it i've done all this stuff i've done the stalking i've done the threats it's not working and then they go back to stage one as somebody with a history or the relationship gets back together again and they just circle back to stage three the real problem is is if they don't do either of those things and they keep moving forward to stage six that you've just talked about. That's when we get really dangerous. Wow. Yeah. So okay. at stage five, they could, they, it can end at stage five.
2: So the relationship can end or it can, no.
3: So you can see lots of people who are controlling and possessive and jealous will go through, get to stage five, will kick off. When that relationship breaks up and they may kick off for a long time, but eventually they will accept and they will go on to the next relationship or they will reinstate the relationship. If they don't do either of those two things and they move on to stage six, that's when police and everybody should be thinking, oh, we got to do something. This is now very dangerous.
2: Okay. Thank you for clearing that up. That makes a lot more, uh, much more sense now. Um, Okay, so what is the difference then in this stage?
3: This is a very difficult stage to see, um, but it's we've called it a change in thinking because this is where they've been trying to get this person back. It hasn't been working. They've been getting angrier and angrier at the, the perceived injustice. And this is where they decide that homicide is the resolution that they can live with. Nothing else they can live with except absolutely annihilating the person who has created this inj- as they see it, this injustice for them. So very often around stage six, we see that things can go quiet all of a sudden, um, and it's in in a lot of the stalking research they call this last chance thinking. So at this stage, they might say things like. Um, Let's have a let's have a last chance drink together and see if we can't resolve this. Let's have a last chance holiday just for the sake of the kids. But that language of last chance, that final, that's almost as if they're saying, I'm giving you one final chance to make this right.
1: Do they know somewhere in the recesses of their brain that the solution is murder? Okay. Okay.
3: At this stage, they do.
1: At this stage. Okay. Okay
3: this is when they're making that leap to how they're going to resolve things and they they will sometimes give the victim a last chance sometimes they don't but they also that like in one case uh, the perpetrator rehomed his dogs in this stage and he went to old girlfriends and apologized for how he had abused them he started putting his will in order you know he was he knew what he was going to do he absolutely knew what he was going to do and this was where he he was making that leap from fighting to accepting and all right then this is how i'm going to resolve it
1: and you, and you said that right before this stage right before this step it could end if that person moves on to another relationship do they is that relationship already escalated to yes. yeah so it so it's not like they have to rebuild that escalation. That person's already kind of there.
3: They'll go back to stage one. Yeah, okay. Person and they'll do the whole thing again. They'll do the whole thing again. But they, if they've got to stage five before, they will get there again. They've proved it.
2: Now, I kind of wanted to wait until the end to, to ask this question, um, but I feel like it's important now. And, and it's basically what what would you tell someone who's listening right now who finds themselves uh, in these stages? Um, because I feel like at this point, if you get a text message saying from your ex saying, hey, let's uh, get together for a last drink or something like that's a very stressful situation now that what we've learned here today. Um, so what would you even how do you respond to that?
3: well i you know i think most victims of this kind of control and abuse have often got in their head that they know that they're in a bit of risk situation and even if they don't now is the time to just you know let's let's not forget that domestic homicide is relatively rare but for the amount of cases of domestic abuse that there are. So, you know, it's relatively rare. So it's about, I would say to somebody, it's about just be aware of your safety. Even if nothing's going to happen, be, best to be safe. And don't, if, you know, if you don't want to go and have a drink with this person, I would say just do not do it. Don't feel guilty. Don't feel like you have to take care of yourself. And, and don't don't get into a situation where you're on your own with that person.
2: OK, yeah. And probably uh, let someone know if you are going to if you do. Just,
3: no, no, just don't do it.
2: Just don't do it. OK, great.
3: Don't do it. But, it, you know, if you're working in a public place and you sometimes people will say, I know what he's capable of and they do. So, you know, if you're working in a public place, make everybody around you aware that you don't really want to see this person. Make the police aware how frightened you are. Go to a domestic abuse service and get advice from them. There's plenty of places you can go. Don't don't have this all on yourself. There are people who can help, and probably you'll be absolutely fine. It's very rare for it to keep going on and on through these stages. But, you know, knowledge is power, so be safe.
2: And uh, stage seven is planning. And um, so again, more escalation here.
3: Yeah. And and this, this is a stage that um, shocked me, really shocked me. um, Because you know that what we were talking about in the beginning the spontaneous, the red mist, you can't predict it. If that's true, then this stage does not exist. But it does. It absolutely does.
1: Right, exactly. Because the red mist is this like, didn't see it coming, snapped, passion of the moment.
3: How can there be planning in that?
1: Yeah, that's shocking.
3: Mm. And I was shocked. I've got to tell you, I was shocked at how strong the evidence was for planning of the homicide. So, I mean, men who are really, really violent as a matter of course, and we know that there are, you know, women in relationships with men like that are more likely to go through stage six, seven and eight very, very quickly. Whereas non-violent men will be more intricate in their planning with something that we found. Um, So if they've they've made that change in thought, they've been through stage six, we have found murder kits. We have found more common, um, you know, that the police are finding and we are certainly encouraging the police to do this if they think we're in stage 7 is to check their browser history we so you know there's actual websites called howtomurdersomebody.com we found searches for those before how to i don't know if i'm starting to, to sound frightening now but you know searching for ways to kill somebody and hide somebody's body
2: definitely sounding frightening yeah. um but uh but educational so that's important um you include increased menace in this um in this stage can you uh describe that a little bit more
3: well the increased menace is usually something that a, a victim will tell you about and very often we don't listen to victims enough we we don't Yeah, you know, uh, so many victims may say to the police I'm really frightened. I think he could really hurt me. I think he's going to do something. We should listen to that because they know what the person's capable of. They've been in a relationship with them. They've got a certain level of fear. Um, so they, if they say, wow, you know, this just feels more menacing than before. That's something that we need to listen to. And if you're a victim saying that to yourself, like I said before, okay, it's probably nothing, but be safe anyway. Be safe anyway. Do what you can to be safe and until you you feel safer to do something. Tell people of your fears. Don't feel guilty. Don't feel that you're being overdramatic. Tell someone.
1: Is that feeling that you're being overdramatic and the feeling that you might be acting as an alarmist, is that something that has always been there with the victim, or is that something that has been planted there by the perpetrator?
3: Oh, I mean both column A and column B, if you like. Um, so victims very often are made to feel, you know, there's there's that term gaslighting, isn't there, where victims are um coerced and manipulated into not trusting their own judgment. Um and that's very, very common in domestic abuse. So, yes, a lot of victims feel like nobody will believe them, or perhaps they don't believe themselves. But you know. I'm sure you've heard of the book, The Gift of Fear, Gavin De Becker, fabulous book, Re- been, been around for a very long time. And he says in, in that book, trust your instincts. Don't ignore your instincts. If you don't feel right, then, you know, act on that. If you don't want to do something, if it feels unsafe, if you if you really, really don't have to do it, then then don't. And I, I would say the same thing.
2: Okay, and the final stage here is just homicide, and uh, so it, I guess there's not too much to this one. The person is killed, um, the, the person goes missing.
3: The person goes missing, um, or they're killed, or there's a homicide suicide, or other people get killed as well. It can play out in many different ways depending on the perpetrator and I, And I know this these eight stages we, we've been talking about sound absolutely terrifying, and actually they are terrifying and we should be stopping these dangerous people before they get to stage eight but i the the really really positive thing that has come out of this research is that at every stage things can be stopped from progressing further at every stage i have seen a homicide stopped at stage eight it's not inevitable when you if you don't know what's going on it's more inevitable than if you do know what's what's going on so knowledge of how these things can play out is is powerful if you've got to to stage 3 for example and you're in a, a controlling relationship you should know if you look at these these stages okay this this person doesn't want me to leave the relationship if i do ever decide to leave be safe about it. Plan it. Make sure you've got resources and supports in, in place. And it's not your fault. You are not at fault here. This person has problem with control.
1: And you've written a lot about this topic. Do, do you do any um, seminars or are you doing any virtual seminars or anything? Because I feel like it's really important to um, get it out there as, in as many forms as you can.
3: I I am I work I'm I'm doing lots and lots of training webinars I've got an online training course that people can do wherever they are in the world you just log on to it um and you can do it online wherever you are I've written a book as you know because I really do want these things getting out to the people who it most affects and that's victims but also police officers and lawyers um And victim support workers and probation officers, you know, all of the people that can possibly, if they're told that somebody's frightened, they they can start to understand what they're being told and how to respond.
2: Thank you so much for your time, Jane Monkton-Smith. And where is the best place for listeners to pick up your new book, In Control?
3: Well, I know that it's on Amazon and it's on all of the bookstores i'm i honestly don't know i don't think it's it's not on general release in america but you can get it from the uk at the moment we're still in talks with america so let's hope that they like us <laughs>